Let's face it, running a construction company can be chaotic. As business owners, we wear a lot of hats and we're constantly putting out fires. Luckily, there's a way to work simpler with Builder Trend. I'm a huge advocate for using technology to help run AFT, and Builder Trend is one of the most crucial tools I rely on to keep me on top of every detail. Built just for home builders and remodelers, this is an easy-to-use platform that helps manage all aspects of my business. My team's been using Builder Trend's project management platform for the last five years, and we love that they're always improving and adding new features to make our lives easier. This is something that we've really tried to take on internally to find ways to improve our system every day. Builder Trend just released a full set of financial services, added new tools like Takeoff to make estimates more accurate, and launched a total rebrand with a new mission to help change the future of construction, and we are on board. To learn more about how Build-A-Trend can help calm the chaos in your construction business, visit buildatrend.com backslash AFT. When you schedule a demo, you'll receive an exclusive 60-day money-back guarantee only available to my podcast listeners. I'm following Build-A-Trend into the future in construction. Come on board with us. We are super excited to announce that we have our fourth Contractor Coalition Summit happening in Austin, Texas this fall. Come out and visit with us on September 14th. Conference will end on Sunday, September 17th. We're going to have an amazing collection of builders all throughout the country. Some amazing vendors will be there in support. We're also going to have a session on construction instruction with Mark LaLiberté, which is going to be part of the summit. Just amazing content, networking, ways that all of us can enhance our brand, our product, and especially our organization looking down to the very core of who we are as builders and how we're operating to make sure that we're operating at the highest level, the camaraderie and the knowledge shared between all the builders, the teachers that come to instruct are super valuable. So make sure you sign up for the Contractor Coalition Summit. Again, whether you're a new company just starting out in your first couple of weeks of business or you're a seasoned company, there's going to be plenty of information, super valuable to attend. So we'll see you in Austin. Most people think I can't negotiate my terms of the contract. People don't want to appear to be difficult. And that really is a small company mindset because no big company does that. No advanced company does that. If you're not negotiating your contract, they don't think that you're easy to deal with. They actually think that you're green. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. We have a special guest with us, Kian Brennan. Welcome, Kian. Hi, Brad. Delighted to be here. Thanks very much. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Excited to have you. So just as a point of reference, this is the dedication of Kian. So as, as he starts diving into the specifics, there's a lot of value here, but it's 530 in the morning in Australia for Kian and he is a 40 under 40. Um, his company has won best of business for innovation and outstanding growth, quantum contract solutions, and he's a CEO owner. So we're excited to have you on Kian. So welcome. Thank you very much. It's the, it's a normal business day for me, to be honest. We start at five, and because we deal with so many different countries around the world, it's just that's just part part and parcel of of life these days. It's hard to find sleep time when you're the CEO owner. I think all of us can relate. And then when you're trying to work in other markets, other countries, it makes it a little bit more challenging. It does, it does, but it makes it fun. It makes it fun. It does make it fun. So let's let's jump into this. I want to, you know, most of us as contractors, even entrepreneurs, right? A lot of us get into it. We have a desire to be contractors, entrepreneurs. Uh, it, it, you know, barrier to entries, fairly easy for most of us, you know, haven't been in the field, but mm -hmm. we don't understand all the ins and outs of running a business, the entrepreneurship side, and most importantly, the risk. A lot of us deal with risk um, from every angle, especially, you know, I, I had a guest on, Andrew Patterson, he spoke about that every time he built a house, his tail got longer, right? And that tail gets really long and you have to mitigate that. And so this is your specialty uh, key. And when we look at risk, um, just as an overview, as you're working with contractors, specifically a lot of risk that, that we have as contractors that we may or may not be aware of. 
Yeah, there's lots of risk, but the, the, I think the first thing to look at is what's the point of reducing risk? You know, it's um, most people understand that, you know, risk is risk. Um, so if you imagine, and you can, we can use a safety example with risk, but really what I'm talking about today is, is commercial, what it means with dollars and cents at the end of the day. And so there's the perception of the risk and there's the actual risk, is the actual risk. So a perception, if you if you remember on a construction site, you know, you've got the young people that come to site and their perception of risk is so much lower than someone who's been on site for a while. Okay, they come in, they don't wear their, their hard hats, they don't wear their safety glasses. And then, uh, so their perception of risk is down here. However, the actual risk is still linear. It's still a straight line across. Now, as they progress through their construction career, they become aware of it, they get educated, and then the, the, it goes up the bell curve. And then towards the end of the career, a lot of times people who have been in, in construction for 20, 30, 40 years, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I've been in construction for this long, nothing's happened, and then the perception of risk comes back down again. But the perception of risk doesn't really matter. The, the reality is what is the actual risk? And so one in a lot of contractors, subcontractors, their perception of risk is they, 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 they have no idea of the risk. They don't understand what the risk is, is in front of them until it goes badly and all of a sudden they've lost a lot of money or they've gone out of business. And we can see that a lot in the market now, Brad. There's a lot of construction companies going out of business. Um, interest rates, squeezing cash flow, cost of materials, squeezing cash flow, cost of labor, squeezing cash flow. So there's a lot of that happening. So the goal is the actual linear line of risk that you have in your contract. How can we take that down? And the purpose of negotiating a better contract is one, ultimately, in, let's, just, let's just say over a five or 10 year period, some, your, your friend's analogy about the tail, something is going to go wrong eventually. 100%. It's construction. Stuff doesn't go right. And so as you're growing as a company, and, and Warren Buffett talks about this and, and a guy called Key Cunningham as well. It's not necessarily about the upside, right? So the upside is important, but a modest upside is is better than a huge upside with big downsides. Because as you're traveling, uh, as your business is growing, it's about the downsides. So if you're growing and growing and growing and you have a bad setback, that's going to set you back five or 10 years or put you out of business. Whereas if you're growing and growing and you have a little setback, that's not necessarily going to put you out of business or set you back five or 10 years. And then you continue to grow as a company. And so all the biggest construction companies out there have teams of contracts, people and lawyers for a reason. The turners of the world, those type of construction companies, the big, big, big construction companies. And so you got to ask yourself, why is that the case? And the case is it's about risk and it's about cash flow and it's about essentially managing your contract and negotiating a better contract up front ultimately leads to having better cash flow and making better margins on your project. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I love that you bring up that most of us, I mean, you only know what you know, right? And so to have an expert such as yourself, Kian, the, the value is, and, and you brought up what happened these last few years, something that I know most of us who were fixed price, for example, um, if we didn't have escalation clauses in there and market takes a turn for COVID, right? That's something that we may, and, and that, that's the reality of understanding that risk, where that level is, where that line is, how we bring it down is, and, and I was just making a few notes as you were speaking, but you think about class action lawsuits, right? From 
um, improper installation, not following owner or, or um, um, like the installation manual properly, right? For the specs, for the manufacturer that, you know, you look at wood flooring in Phoenix and Phoenix, it's, um, it's really dry here. We don't have a lot of humidity. And so there, there has to be a certain humidity in the home so that we don't have expansion and contraction issues with the wood flooring. And if we don't meet that, you know, if we don't have humidifiers added in the air conditioning. And again, there's just so many little things when you talk about, you know, insurance mass. Do we have the right insurance? Are we properly insured? Builders mm-hmm. risk. I mean, these are things that essentially you're counseling with your team, with your clients to say, hey, these are aspects of the contract we need to look at that protect you as the builder. So then in case there is an issue, you have some protection. Yeah, hundred percent. The escalation example is is a perfect example. So, if you were if you provided any kind of steel, or if you were let's just say you were a steel fabricator, and you were locked into a lump sum contract, the cost of steel increased by at maximum during that period sixty percent. So I don't know what sort of business you can be to absorb a 60% increase, right? But if you are, I want to be in it. But ultimately, that's a, a huge, huge issue. And so without the proper escalation clause, that's prob- uh, that's a that's a real issue. And so the, the risks really are, there, there's a couple of big risks in a contract. Um, and the, the big ones is your, your overall liability, um, your termination, termination clauses and uh, consequential loss uh, loss or loss of profit so let me just go through those quickly they're, they're the kind of big three ones we like to look at so you you've got every every time something happens you've got there's an element of liability and so what is the overall aggregate liability for the contract that you're signing up to and so oftentimes more often than not, it's it's unlimited. So if your contract value is, say, $2 million and you've been, something goes wrong and they want to take you to court, they can sue you for way more than $1 million, essentially. Now, there there is a a, a few little... uh, changes to that, or a few little intrigue in like little details ar- around that. But if you cap your liability at the contract value or half of the contract value, the most that they can come after you for, provided that there's no misconduct and you've not done anything illegal, is the contract value or half of the contract value. So again, if we look at that five to ten year period, and we know we've capped our aggregate liability or total liability for each single contract, you know that your maximum exposure is X, Y, and Z. Insurance companies like that, you should like that, like um, from um, internally when you're reporting, it really brings down your risk substantially, substantially. So anything can happen, right? And you've, you're capped at the total amount of how much you could be taken to court for. So that's the first one. The next one, and it links into that, is consequential loss or loss of profit. So a lot of times you'll be asked to to take on that risk of consequential loss or loss of profit. And what that means is if you got, everyone knows what liquidated damages means, I'm pretty sure. So liquidated damages, let's just say you have a hotel. And when you've got a hotel, you've been asked to build a hotel and you're definitely late. It's 100% your fault. Liquidated damages is to reimburse the client for the cost of the delay, right? So it's like, okay, because you're late, you've delayed all these other guys and we've had to pay standby rates for all of these other guys and blah, blah, blah. That's the the cost of the delay to construction. 
Now, they've also not been able to rent out the hotel rooms because you've been late. That's a loss of profit. And so that's the two, that's the difference between the two of them. That's consequential loss is the loss of profit. However, your comp the company you're dealing with, if they're a big company, their loss of profit might be the size of your business. And so again, they can come after you and that could be a company ender. The last one is termination. It's really, really important termination. So with termination, you've got to have an escape hatch in, in your contract. Oftentimes, if you look at the termination clauses, that's all you really have to do. You've got to go into the contract, look at the termination clause, how do I get out? And you'll notice a lot of times there's no way for you to get out. There's a lot of ways for them to get rid of you, right? Termination for convenience, termination for default. Um, and so what you want to do is have what's called reciprocal termination. So that makes sure that you can terminate them if they default. And what that really means is, in the reality of, of life and playing it out, if they don't pay you, you want to be able to terminate the contract. You never want to be in a situation where they haven't paid you and you have to keep working and keep incurring additional debt as you keep going. And with so many GCs going out of business, if you're dealing with them and you have to keep working, you still don't know if they're going to pay you or not. Like it's better for them to keep you working because more work is complete, which means the project is worth more, more money to a liquidator. This is really good advice. And the reason let, let's focus on number three, because you mentioned the termination clause, the escape hatch, if you will, which cancel for convenience, I think is something we should bring up. The reason being is that um, maybe explain what the, the cancel for convenience is and how this can impact both sides. For example, if an owner says, okay, Ken, um, you know, and this could be a big project. You, you've essentially assigned manpower, you know, people in your company, you've maybe hired for a certain project and then all of a sudden for whatever reason, clients going through divorce, maybe financially they're going through something as a company and they decide to cancel the project. Well, there's dollars now that you've invested or, or put into this project or anticipated revenue that will come from it. They essentially, if you have a contract to protect you, you can put that in there. Um, but what about the flip side as well, where, as you mentioned, what if you're working for a really difficult client? If they're not making decisions, if they're, you know, you, you see where it's going, what options do we have as contractors to say, hey, I need the escape hatch. I need to get out of this contract. How can I set myself up from pre-construction just in case something goes awry and it's just not protecting the client? Yeah, well, that would be the determination for default. We'd have to prove that they have defaulted on their obligations in the contract for you to get out. So first of all, you, you got to make sure that you can do that. You can terminate them. And secondly, it is understanding how they defaulted on the contract and then making sure that you can stand by that to get out of the contract. Otherwise, it's kind of just hearsay. You've, it, you know, or they haven't approved things quick enough or whatever. If you can show a body of evidence of you constantly not that not happening, well, then potentially that's them defaulting on their obligations to um, approve things quickly, essentially. Exactly. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that aspect up because the reality is as long as we have clear defined terms for default where they're not performing the owner, that does give us, hey, there may be written notice we have to give them and I'm sure there's notification. But essentially at some point, you know, to have the escape shoot ready for us, we have to make sure that that's lined out on what that means for both sides. For them too, that if we're not performing or we don't have, you know, the crews on site, that they can notify us and then we have a chance to rectify before essentially the contract's eliminated. 
Yeah, 100%. And then th that chance to rectify it is a huge thing. So sometimes we see you don't even get a chance to rectify it because in the in your termination clause, they have the option to, to go to somebody else. And so they decide to get rid of you and they go to someone else and then they backcharge you for the cost of going to the other guy, which mightn't have been the cheapest option. Yeah, and that's a really good point because let's speak about how this relates to subcontractors as well. You know, right now we're kind of focused on the owner you know, contractor relationship, but now you have the trade partners involved and that aspect too, for a general contractor. Now, how many of, you know, the clients that you're working with, are they actually contracting, you know, their trade partners, all of their subcontract suppliers and, and trade partners. And the reason I ask that is because a lot of them who are listening may push back and say, okay, Ken, this sounds great, but in my market, they're not going to sign a, you know, a contract, you know, they're not willing to take that risk by signing. They're going to be like, Hey, just sign my proposal. We agree to X, Y, Z. You know, how do you work around that challenge? You know, just in getting subcontractors contracted. Yeah. So you got to, you, I mean, if you're, we're, we're speaking a little bit um, back to frontier because I typically we help subcontractors in their negotiations with uh, GC, with GCs. Mm -hmm. All right, but to flip it around, if you want to give a subcontractor a contract, you can't give him a big, voluminous contract. You can still get a contract put together that is protects most of your risks, and it be quite short. And so my my suggestion is what a lot of people do is you use a standard contract, a, a, like a like an a, a American standard contract, yeah, AIA, uh, yeah, AIA, and amend it to suit so they understand what it looks like, or you get a lawyer to draft up your own one that is is um, that is quite short. Um, it, it, from experience, the size of the contract, if you throw a 100-page document or 200-page document in front of a small <laughs> trade partner, they're just, yeah, they're going to bulk. So, yeah, really you want to make it as small as possible and, and cover most of your risk. And it is better. Like, you want to protect your risk. That is the game um, that is being played is that you want to arbitrage your risk down to them. Um, because otherwise, if you sign their proposal, you're taking on a lot of their risk, which is not really what you want to do. So because you advise a lot of the trade partners, subcontractors, right, are you actually asking them to look at the owner contract, right? Because yeah. My understanding mm -hmm. is that you should have that accessibility that, hey, if we're signing a subcontract with this GC, we should be able to see the parent contract so we understand that, you know, all the terminology, anything lines up with our, you know, negotiation. Well, that's that's a that's a good point, right? And so, yes and no, right? So the first thing we always say is if there's – because if we're dealing with a GC, we say, firstly, hey, we have a contract with you, not with the owner. Right. You're You're engaging me right to do this work so i don't really want to see any reference to the owner and and in particular i don't want to see any reference to the owner's contract like right? pay so when paid pay yeah something like that hey pay when paid but you know pay when paid is illegal in most in most uh of the rest of the world so it's it's an absolutely horrible contract so paid when paid is is awful but again you sometimes you'll have a, a section of the contract that says uh, regardless of what anything this contract says, the the owner's contract supersedes this contract, and so anything like that you don't want in a contract because it's so broad. And then you, and then if if you if they say that that you have to do that, 
then you want to you want to see the owner's contract because you want to see the risk that's in the owner's contract that you're actually signing up to. So in you're 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 right in both. Initially, you want to say that I'm only dealing with you. I'm not dealing with the 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 owner. Therefore, let's get rid of the owner from the contract. We can reference the owner as just for an FYI, but not referencing his contract and make it specific to the work that we're doing. And then that's the first thing. The second thing is if if it has to be in there, you want to see the contract. And then basically, yeah, you know, what tends to happen is a GC might have not negotiated a great contract for themselves and are pushing down terrible terms onto you. And then you might want to reconsider taking a project in the first place. Yeah, and I think the value, as you mentioned, is that so everyone understands the spirit of this conversation is as, as a trade partner, as your contract, the GC, you want to make sure that no, our terms are with you. You're, you're sent to my client. You know, I'm not going to be speaking to the owner themselves. It's not pay when paid. Like here's how we're going to make this so amicable between us. The reason I bring it up is because I know, for example, in Arizona, if the owner is not holding retention on me as a general contractor, I cannot hold retention on my subcontractors. I mean, it's illegal to do that, right? That it, it's working on one side of the ledger, if you will. And that's why it's important because I know that some GCs have pushed that, like they, they hold retention on their subs, but they're not having retention held on them by the owner who's paying the bills. And so that's the value too for, I'm sure you, Keen, as you're going through this to say, Hey, why are you holding me in retention and you're not having on this side? And so there's definitely some value to looking at that because now you're making sure that everything is flowing properly. Yeah. A hundred percent. I don't really have any comment here. That's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's right on. Yeah. So, so maybe talk about this. When you talk about risk, the consequential loss is interesting. So liquidated damages, as we understand, like if uh, it's very, very often in commercial, I've, I've had a couple of residential clients that have put LDs in my contract. Um, and depending on the project and negotiation and timeline and stuff, you know, we're, you know, we, we may be okay with that. And, and right now I have one right now that we're okay with, but the reality is, is we have to understand as contractors that, there, there is a cause and effect. If I don't finish this project by this time, and it's my fault, there, there's dollars that are cost. You know, if Walmart, I'm trying to open a Walmart, or you mentioned a hotel or restaurant, Kian, I mean, there, there's lost revenue for every day that that's not open. You know, mm -hmm. Walmart, especially I, for my commercial background, you build a Walmart, they're going to put some big liquidated damages because they have all their trucks ready. That, you know, they're, they're essentially sending hundreds of them down to the store. They're going to furnish it. You got to be done and ready. Um, how punitive can it be for a builder to have that consequential loss, a loss of profit in addition to LDs. I mean, is there a max? You mentioned that, you know, with the liability, you may be able to negotiate that. That was kind of step one on maybe you're mm -hmm. capping it at some amount, but mm -hmm. how does that consequential loss play a role and how should we, you know, mitigate that as, as builders? Well, as, as a builder, you should have, uh in my opinion, what I would do and what we do in a company is that your stance as a company is we do not accept consequential damages. Just full stop. That is one of our, and then if you want to use good language, you can say it's one of our commercial principles that we do not accept consequential damages or consequential loss or whatever it's called, loss or profit. They change in, in, in every contract. So that would be the first thing. With liquidated damages, uh, liquidated damages are fair, right? Because if we look at what, where liquidated damages came from was before they existed, Every time a, a damage is putting someone back into the position that they were in before they dealt with you, that's damages. And so every single time you were engaged or you worked on a construction project and you were late, you would have to go to court. And they would, both parties would go to court, the owner or the, the whoever was, was, was 
the the top in in line in in the contract would have to take the person below him to court to recoup his money that he lost because of the delay every single time so they came up with this this liquidated damages which is a, pre, a genuine pre-estimate of what the cost will be so if that does happen then we don't have to go to court and we've already agreed what the cost will be so that was the, that's the purpose of liquidated damage so liquidated damages in general is fair because you're just putting them back in a position that they would have been in however sometimes they're not fair sometimes the amount of liquidated damages is over the top and so Typically, what we like to look at with liquidated damages is generally it's 1% of the contract value per whatever is the unit per day, per, per week, whatever it is they're, they're going to try and recoup and, this, and based on, this, on the size of the contract. So that's, that's typically reasonable and then or less, of course, or less. And then we want to cap it at 10% of the contract value. So LDs, in theory, would be 1% per day or per week capped at 10% of the contract value. So again, then, you're fully aware of your risk. You fully understand how much you're up for. And in hopefully in either situation, you're if it goes very, very wrong, you're still not going out of business. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers. Because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. They're, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty. You know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. How, in your experience, as you're working on the negotiation side for LDs to be essentially a cap of 10%, have you ever had pushback? Uh, with a cap of 10%, we, we always have pushback on, the, on these things. It's how you approach it. That, that that gets you across the line. So of what we put forward, about 82% um, is our average of what gets approved. And so it's about how you phrase it in your documentation. So typically you're going to get a bid, you're going to bid for work, and there's going to be a section where they go, you know, what are your departures or clarifications to the contract? It's in there that we're we're, we're dealing with these particular matters. And so, yeah. You will get pushback. You might have to be a little bit more. You might have to be a little bit less, but that's that's what we're aiming for. And and to be honest, most of the time we get it. It's interesting because essentially, Kian, what what I've realized, especially in my career, is that there, um, there's definitely an aspect to running a business to have the understanding. You've made the mistakes, the pitfalls, and you're going to learn from them. And you're going to, you know, you have that, you know, essentially that information to recall as you're going through the sales process negotiation. Then by having an expert on your side, such as yourself, you're going to have 
someone who's dealt with this all over the place, right? And so a lot of times what I didn't realize early in my career is that these are negotiable. Most of the time, you know, this this owner wants to hire you, Ken. They want to hire me. Um, there's definitely protections in there. Essentially, contracts are just divorce agreements because mm-hmm. ideally we never use them. That That's the goal. That's that, totally but, great. Yeah, but the divorce agreement is real in case that happens. If it happens, we have to have protections. So the reason 82% is interesting, you bring up that statistic, that you, that you actually track that. I think that's really interesting because I would imagine that there's a lot of things that you're redlining and checking. And, and so 82% is really high. So there's definitely... Um, some validity into the information you're providing and the theory behind it and the reasoning to where it can be negotiable that four out of five, essentially they are approving those. Yep. And so this, this, I mean, we've got lots of employees in, in the States and this is entirely accurate for, for the States and that most people think I can't negotiate my terms of the contract. And so our, our, our stats show that 82% of, of what we put forward gets approved. And so firstly, hopefully that, that breaks a belief that you can't negotiate. Or if, if, you, you know, if you can imagine how much risk has been reduced by getting 82% across the line, like it's a massive. And then particularly if we get some of those big ender, like company enders out of it, like it's, it's you know, it's, it's many times uh, the, the risk has been reduced. But... People don't want to appear to be difficult. They don't want to appear to be uh, someone that is going to be hard to deal with. And that really is a small company mindset because no big company does that. No advanced company does that. And so really, if you're not negotiating your contract, they don't think that you're easy to deal with. They actually think that you're green that you don't know what you're doing. This is your first big project. Whereas if you go back to them and in a professional way say, you know, because of my insurance, I can't do this. Because of my commercial principles, I can't do this. And a lot of times that's true. A lot of times your insurance is not going to pay out based on the contract that you've signed. Fact. So if you're able to lay out those things in a very organized manner in a way that is kind of what we like to say semi-submissive um in that you're asking permission oh, can, here's the reason we want to get this out of contract it doesn't make sense um can we put this in instead whereas if you go like remove this put this in and like you know this is absurd those type of things are never going to get you to where you want to get to does that make sense this, yeah this is fascinating Kim, because you actually said something that i've never heard interpreted this way, or at least understood this way, is that you mentioned that, especially when you're dealing with a savvy client or someone who's experienced, if they're negotiating with a contractor and a contractor doesn't push back, they may look at them as novice, green, you know, rookie, if you will. Um, and a lot of us may be on the other side of it as we're preparing, you know, our, our pushback. We don't want to seem difficult. You know, we want to win the job or we want to get it and we'll do whatever it takes without really understanding, as you mentioned, bringing down that risk level. And that's why there is value to say, no, this is exactly why we do it this way. You know, we're tried and true. Here's our record. And we stand behind it because I would imagine that as you're dealing with contractors, a lot of them are thinking, well, if I push back, they're going to think that I'm confrontational or I'm challenging or why am I obsessed about this? Does it mean I'm not going to perform or step up to it? I'm sure you're dealing with that mentality as well. Yeah. For sure. It's, it's, I mean, these are beliefs that need to be broken. And then in the, in the post-award phase, people can think again, the contract will say very clearly, if you don't submit a notice or change order, we're not going to get your, 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 
by these times your 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 change is not going to be approved if you don't submit a notice and then an extension of time your delay is not going to be approved and so by not following these things you're putting your own company at the massive risk and people think again i just i just want to work it out man to man face to face um and that's one of the big things we've seen in the last to be honest 15 years in in specifically is that it the construction industry used to be very personable i'll just sit down with the guy and we'll work it out okay that is not the way it is anymore and the reason that it isn't that way anymore is because even smaller construction companies have corporate governance technology now that the big companies used to have back in the day whereas if you submit a document into them for for a, a change order they're going to have a document on their side that says have they complied with the notification provision or not have they like did they submit it within 3 or 4 days whatever whatever it happens to be there's a box that has to be ticked and if they can't tick the box it gets rejected so you got to know that these companies now are even smaller companies are a lot more advanced than they used to be which means that all of a sudden, it's not a man-to-man -man thing anymore. It, it is you need to do the contractual thing exactly as the contract says. I mean, relationships are still very important in construction. Of course they are. But they're just not as important as they used to be. They need to be taking in tandem with the contract. It's really interesting. And, and you brought up, what, looking back at the contract was really interesting because you made a comment about sometimes the insurance companies won't even insure you based on the contract you sign. How, they'll how insure often? you. Sorry, this is a this is a, this is a point. This is this is a real problem of mine. They will insure you. They just won't pay you. And and essentially, that's what I mean. When you say they won't pay you, I mean break that down so that we understand what that is. The difference there that they will insure you, and they're going to collect the dues and premiums and so forth. But when the incident happens, yeah, they're not going to step and pay. So maybe explain, you know, yep. the difference so, there. So you're going to sign up for some sort of insurance, right? I don't know. Uh, public liability or, or whatever it happens to be and the it, the policy itself will say something like we we we're we will will pay out based on you signing a contract that has these things or if you sign a contract that has these other things that there's too much risk in the contract, then we won't pay out because you've taken on too much risk, which I guess is reasonable enough from their point of view, but they just never say that. You just sign what you think is your insurance. You think you're fully covered and then something actually happens and they'll go, okay, well, you signed up to consequential loss and we don't insure for consequential loss. And you're like, what? Or something like that, right? You you have to go into it. There's so many different examples that you have to go in and look at your insurance policy, and you also need to go in um, and look at the contract itself. So that is a big deal because I don't. You, none of us want to be in a situation. The insurance companies don't want to pay you. At the end of the day, they don't. So that's my view. So do you ever see or recommend that, um, especially because you know a lot of these insurance companies. Um, they, they, they can be difficult. There's a lot of language that maybe we think we're protected to something, to some certainty. And I know this is, uh, I don't want to sidetrack this too much, but I think the value is my experience has been, especially if you have a good broker or a good agent that's working with you in your company, they're going to review, you mm -hmm. know, contracts, they're going to review trades that we're hiring. They're going to review, you know, different terminology. How often are our contractors sending those contracts to their insurance companies for review to say, Hey, just take a look at this, you know, to make sure there's nothing that, that, causes you 
you know, any harbor. A, a, a lot of our clients do, to be fair to them, um, but a, a, a lot don't. Um, and the thing is, they'll do it for free. Yeah, most times. the insurance companies will. They'll do it for free. So just do it. Just so go, here's a contract I'm about to sign, basically, right? And then say, just confirming that this is in, in, in compliance with our, our policy. That's all you need to do. They'll do it for you. So two-part question here, because you mentioned this earlier, especially as you're working with trade partners, that um, <clears throat> when, when you're done with the contract, um, and let's say there's a default or they're not performing, well, if the general contractor, the owner hires somebody else, brings them in and then back charges them, you know, this can get really messy, right? That they didn't have a chance to fix their work. I know a lot mm -hmm. of general contractors, there's all of us across the board have got to an end of a project. The relationship went sour for whatever reason. Client mm -hmm. doesn't want to pay. They don't want to pay the last mm -hmm. payout. You know, they may have these crazy stipulations. And then in some cases, I know a builder without, you know, bringing out on here, but it's told me, you know, they work in an affluent area and a lot of their clients have more money and their strategies on the last payment. They don't even want to pay them because they know that they can bury them and they'll say, we'll just be in lawsuits and push this out. And I have a lot more money than you. And so they walk away. How, how do trades GCs protect themselves when you're looking at either one, a default mm -hmm. issue or number two, that final payment? Okay, easy. Well, easy. This is easy for you, Kia. That's why you're. This is this is what I'm. You know, this is the way I, I look at it. So, I'm gonna the, the wrong way to do a construction project. First of all, is sign the contract as given. Secondly, you know, if do absolutely nothing, no contractual stuff whatsoever. Right. Try and roll everything into one big change order or one big delay and try to get that approved towards the end or mid project. OK, so that's absolutely horrendous for your cash flow, horrendous for your risk. Um, but everyone does it that way. And so it also is really bad for your relationship with the client because it turns into a big fight. Um, and it also all of a sudden you you got contractual at the end and then they end up not paying you. And so the, the thing is, we've got a term in the business called squeaky bum time. And squeaky bum time is if you're a sports guy, it's the last quarter of a game. It is the last uh, 15 minutes of a, of, a, of a football game, whatever it is, it's the last part of the game. And it was uh, brought in by a, a famous manager called Alex Ferguson. And he's talking about people shifting around in the plastic seats in the stadium where people are getting nervous, right? So squeaky bum time in construction is the last quarter of the construction project. That's when everything kicks off. So very simply, when it comes to contract management, all you're doing through the whole project is preparing yourself for that last quarter. That's all you need to all you need to look at it. So if we go back to the start of the project, now we want to start submitting notices for everything. All we're doing is building a body of evidence for this final quarter so that when that person tries that move or they say there's a dispute, you are covered. You're like, okay, fine. I've got all of this paperwork showing specifically you delaying me here, you delaying me here, you delaying me here, this, 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 and this. And therefore, when it comes to that, you are protected. And more often than not, they don't pull that move because they know, oh, I'm in trouble here. If, if, if I do go to court, I'm going to lose. Or if they do go, or if you're on a big project, they'll go, when they're trying to save money, they'll go, okay, I won't pick on this guy. I'm going to pick on someone where there's, there's less backup. Yeah, it makes sense. It's interesting to bring that up because essentially what it comes down to is that if you're waiting to the end, 
to try to collect or hopefully everything's kumbaya and you're in a great position at the end of the project. That's the wrong way to go. I mean, you essentially should have terms, whether you have deposits and how you're going to classify warranty and punch. We spend a lot of time with this in our contracts to really walk the client through the process. Here's how we're going to determine warranty. Here's how we determine punch. Here's how we assign values to it. Here's how that's paid. You know, as we get to the final punch list and we do our own walkthrough, mm-hmm. um, the more information we can have laid out, essentially that that's what you're implying. That's where the council comes in from you, Keith. Yeah, exactly. And as well, if you're like, as you're submitting the documents prior in like earlier in the project, you are encountering problems with your client quicker with smaller values. And so when, if they're not approving things quickly, that's, that's obviously okay. Like you need to, you can start raising that and you're not approving things quickly. Or um, if they're disagreeing with every single one of your claims every single time then you you know that um and then you can deal with that whereas if you're waiting for that one big one and then they do it for that one then you lose a lot of money so how many builders are using contracts in all aspects of the business um how many builders are using contracts most i mean most builders will have a contract themselves they won't have a very good one they might have a standard contract how many builders are playing the game that's being played, regardless of if you're playing, um, it's hard to know. There's a lot of builders out there, um, and there's a lot of pretty, there's a lot of cowboys as well. <laughs> I like that. Uh, the cowboys always tell clients, it's like, the, the interesting thing, and maybe you could speak to this is, you know, in the commercial world, um, I don't want to say it's more sophisticated, but it's just, it's different, right? And you mentioned Turner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's some big companies doing billions of dollars a year. Um, very savvy from contracts. You know, they're working with a mechanical subcontractor may have 400 employees, electrician that may have 700, mm-hmm. you know, on a residential side, we're dealing, I call it the wild west in residential construction because I'm dealing with the mom and pa shop. I may have my trim guy that has three people, mm-hmm. my mechanical contractor may have eight people, mm-hmm. you know, they may not even use email like they should. And so when you're working in the residential world, essentially what you're speaking to Keen is this is the value of having a good partner in writing contracts such as your team, is that now you're going to be protected just like a commercial company would be, but on a mm-hmm. residential cowboy level. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that's that's essentially it. It, it. It's it's hard to convey the understanding the risk and your contracts well and skewing them in your favor, to be honest, is going to make you a lot of money. Because if you're able to play the game that Turner play with everybody else, except you can play it on your residential projects, that's going to over time that will, you know, that's going to cut it. I mean, if you're ever playing, um, you know, back in my university days, it was, it was poker was very, very popular. And so the general thing in poker is you, the Texas Hold'em, you get two cards and you get, you know, you can get good cards, you can get bad cards. Essentially, if you only played the good cards, over time, you would always do better than someone who was very risky and throw stuff into the pot. And so that's what we're saying is, is if you just play the best possible cards over time, the statistics will come around and work in your favor and eventually you'll make money. So how did you get into contracting? Um, I got in via my, okay. So basically I went dark side. I went owner side um, for most of my career. The dark side, I like that. <laughs> um, and so my my grandfather was a was a contractor. When he when he died, there was a 
uh, a news article that said the man who built Galway, which is this place in the west of Ireland. And the advice from from him and the advice from my father was don't don't become a contractor. <laughs> right you're better off going owner side go get a degree go go that side it's more you know sustainable and you know so i did that and i worked for some of the biggest companies in the world chevron uh shell um and then a consultancy that helped the, these guys develop specific strategies around contracts to essentially make more money on projects and to push the risk around the place and so eventually i got to the stage where I was seeing so many subcontractors losing money or contractors losing money and going out of business because they didn't understand these corporate governance of these not these are obviously massive companies but as obviously the tier ones are the same as well so Turner is this interior tier one company which is like they're in theory a, a massive GC right Turner and so it's exact same for all of these large companies and so I can show contractors how to navigate the insides of these companies. Um, and that's where the idea came from. And that's how we started the business. And then that's where the, the whole, the, it all took off, I guess. It's amazing. So let me, let me break this down a little bit. So you're working for the, you know, for the owner. Um, you saw that a lot of contractors were losing. I'm sure you had um, some sensitivity there being from your father and grandfather that were yep. successful builders and building Ireland. Um, you know, from an entrepreneurship mindset, you know, behind the scenes, it's one thing to be an entrepreneur and end up doing what you've done. But what made you take that leap? What made you say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to do this and make a complete career change and do something totally different from the other side of the ledger? Um, I think it was so I was working for this consultancy at the time. And I was in a leadership position. Uh, I was a director there. And we were sitting around at a table and we're talking about what we're doing for all of these different clients for like, you know, for Shell um, and uh, Maersk Oil, Maersk, do you know Maersk, the, the Danish yeah. shipping company? Yep. Uh -huh. So we're talking oh, yeah. about all, all of these guys and all the, the projects they're working on, how we can help. And the, the, the topics of discussion were never about how we can help them save money or contractually. It was always about landing and expanding. We want to get two people in here, then we want to grow the team to four to five so we can get a bigger commission from them, blah, blah, blah. That was all the, the discussion. And I was like, I just don't want to be part of this. And so um, I, I felt the easiest way to get to where I wanted to get to, which actually, <laughs> I mean, was a bit of a silly thing, um, was to start my own business. So Brad, you know, you've got your own business. It, it is not easy with a, with a, with a business. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's... That's why I, I started. I started because I was so frustrated with what was currently happening. I didn't feel like I could do it the way I wanted to do it. And so oh, that's that's how the business started. So how, and, and looking now at the company from where you started to now, growth, you know, taking an opportunity to marketing, you know, finding clientele, you know, that journey to, to where you are now as a, as a branding company. Yeah, I love it. I mean, so we started in Australia, we expanded to the US, <laughs> New Zealand, we're expanding to to Canada now. All of these little moves have massive complexity when it comes to marketing, when it comes to sales, um, when it comes to delivering the service. And so I absolutely love that. 
I absolutely love um, the scaling part of the business, the um, the entrepreneurial side. Um, I'll still get on calls um, with with clients when they got a real sticky construction dispute issue because I, I still love it. But yeah, my, my passion now is running and scaling the business without a doubt. So how challenging challenging was that to go to US from Australia, you're going to Canada, you know, as you've expanded internationally, um, you know, most people are looking like, hey, I don't even want to expand another state, yet alone another country. What's that been like? Really hard. Um, well, because US is 50 states, it's essentially 50 different countries. <laughs> Right? Yeah. And so and every state, if I interrupt you, every state has their own legislation, they have their own rules, especially for contract. I build in Arizona, it's totally different than every other state. Yeah, absolutely. And so they're all factors. So there was so there was a lot of, you know, naysayers and that there's too hard, too difficult. Um, but the thing is, ultimately, in the game that we're in, we're, our advice is within the contract. So you're going to be given a contract and within that contract, all the things I've talked about is how to negotiate them, how to do contracts administration. And so the old company I used to work for, uh, the, the consultancy I was talking about, they've got 20, 30 offices all over the US. And so I, I was like, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And so slowly but surely, we figured everything out. We hired the right people um, and our system absolutely has delivered amazing results for us clients as as well as the rest of the world so we look at it is is it's an overall philosophy on how we deal with contracts how we negotiate contracts and that doesn't change that is the same obviously there's small nuances between each state that we need to be careful of but in general that's that's that was the hardest part was was getting that down the the marketing and sales, I mean, realistically, it was about hiring people in the US, um, really good people, finding really good people. That was a challenge in itself was how do you find good people? Um, and so that was another little thing. So it was kind of like you take one step, you solve that one thing, you take the next step, you solve that next thing. And it's just constant solving problems. And obviously, time zone for me is difficult because how do you lead a team of people in the US with a different time zone? So my workday is, you know, I jumped on here with you at half five. My workday is five until it's kind of almost two workdays. It's five until 10 or 11, a bit of a break. And then I'll go again. And then sometimes I've got a podcast in the evening as well. It's amazing. So with all everything you have going on, the expansion, the success you built, what do you do for fun? Um, what do I do for fun? Well, I'd like to say, I mean, I just came back from a, a, a holiday in Ireland where, where we had a wedding and there was a lot of Guinness drank. So <laughs> I don't want to say I drink Guinness for fun, but that was a lot of fun. But uh, no, I'm a big, I'm a big cyclist. Um, I, I used to race, uh, race bikes and not so much anymore. I just, I just go for rides and I like being fit. I like to run. Um, I've got a, a growing family as well. So, um, I like being around those guys. Um, and that's it really. So I'd say cycling, um, business is probably a big passion of mine and that's it. Other than that, I'm pretty boring. So best advice you've been given other than your grandfather saying, don't go into construction. Best <laughs> advice I've been given just full stop where well, there's been a lot of it. Um, I think the, the, for business, I think it's better, more new. Always concentrate on doing what you're currently doing better. Then 
if then if you got that nailed then do more of it and only then go to new so many people go to new very quickly shiny objects in, uh, syndrome um as they call it so i find concentrating on what we do and making it better and better and better incremental progress constant improvement that's actual success that's that's how you really do it in the reality of the world well i had to write this down you said better more new so do better you know then once you're there do more of it and then essentially then you can expand or or do yeah do new. you can do only only then can you give yourself permission to do something new where people are and the, and the problem by for entrepreneurs is when you start a business you you get rewarded for doing something new and changing things and then you really learned the wrong lesson unfortunately because you did have success by doing something new and you were rewarded for that by having some smaller success but to scale the business is not doing more new things it is doing what you're currently doing better and at bigger volumes well, this is really sound advice. I think most of us that are entrepreneurs, we love the hunt, right? The kill, you know, the the new opportunity, the shiny new object, the, the mm -hmm. new thing we're pursuing without really focusing on what we have and are we, you know, bettering our systems and processes and contracts specifically as we discussed today. Um, Keen, you've been super gracious with your time. As you mentioned, this is really early in our show. You have a busy work day. I'm sure you already have people calling you. So for those listening, where can they find you? You know, especially to contract you for your services and, um, yeah, leave us with that note. Okay, well, so so our mission is to take the industry from its knees to its feet. There's so many companies getting bullied, pushed around contractually. So we've lots of free stuff. So we've got a podcast called Construction Secrets um, and a YouTube channel called Construction Secrets. And but most both of those things are essentially lessons learned. So problems that we have, we've come across and solved essentially, or problems our clients have come across, and that we talk about it. And so just by listening, you're not you're gonna you're going to become wise, right? So you, I like the term wise as, you know, most, I think we're the only animals on this world who can learn from previous mistakes. So if you look at a mouse or something, one mouse, let's just say there's a little trap um, or a little electric shock, the mouse will hit the electric shock and then he'll never come back to it again. But the other guy in the cage won't learn that lesson. He'll hit the trap and then come back himself. But humans, we can learn. That's why I think we're quite obviously advanced is we can learn from other people's mistakes. And that's that's what wise is. And so you can be wise by listening to all these podcasts, learn from other people's mistakes. Don't make them yourself. Um, get the reward without the scar. And in in the YouTube, there's a playlist and it basically t shows you exactly everything in the contract, how to negotiate your contract. So it's all there. So it's all free. Go for it. Um, and if you want us to do it for you um, specifically, go to quantumcontractsolutions.com um, and then, yeah, go from there. Well, Keen, you've been amazing. Can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise. There's a ton I learned um, from this episode. So really appreciate you really happy to be here. If you give value from the show, please support us by giving a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And I also have a favor to ask. We've had some incredible guests that come on and share their wisdom, their knowledge about their business. So if you have friends or family members that could benefit from those episodes, please share it with them, as well as any other business owners that you're networking with that could get value from the podcast or certain episodes. Please share those as well. Again, subscribe, make sure you're following any questions that you have, topics. We've had uh, listeners reach out about certain guests that we should have on the show. Again, brad.l at aftconstruction.com. 
email me for topics to address, guests that we should have on, and even if you think you'd be a great guest for the show. So again, thank you for all your support and we'll see you next time.